You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, guys, we are in Romans chapter 8. We are going to take just a small break from our sermon series through the Gospel of John. And if you thought, man, with Michael transitioning on, maybe we won't spend a year and a half in one book, uh, you're wrong. That was one of the contingencies of me leaving. I was like, Adam, make him sweat. Make him work for it, man. Um, And so we will jump right back into that next Sunday. But today we are in Romans chapter 8. So it has been six years to this month since Rachel and I moved down to Mascouda from the Chicago suburbs to plant Mercy's Door. And I remember distinctly the conversations that we were having, the emotions and the feelings that we had as we moved down to Mascouda and felt an overwhelming conviction from the Lord that this is what He was calling us into. He was calling us into bringing the gospel to Mascouda and Scott Air Force Base. And we had all of these conversations about just how desperate and primed and ready these communities were to hear the gospel and how thankful we were that the Lord had equipped us and sent us out to go and proclaim the gospel to other people. And then a strange and funny thing happened along the last six years. It turns out that as much as the Lord wanted us to come down and preach the gospel to other people, what the Lord was really doing was moving us down here so that we could have the gospel preached to us. We learned that we were the ones that needed to learn the gospel. We learned that we were the ones that needed to relearn daily the gospel. We learned we were the ones that needed to actually believe the gospel. And if you don't believe me, let me tell you a statement that has been said in our house multiple times over the last six years, and it sounds something like this. I'm not sure that I've ever actually believed the gospel until right now. That's the conversation that goes on regularly in your lead pastor and his wife's home. And so as I prepared to to preach this last sermon at Mercy's Door, at first I thought, man, what what are the things I want to tell them? I want to leave them with. What's the, the last kind of commission I want to give to them? And instead, here's what I want to do. Instead, what I want to do is I want to invite you into what I've learned what the Lord has been teaching me of the gospel and quite honestly what he's been continuing to show me of the gospel. So, four truths of the gospel. I wish I could have made them alliteration, um, but uh, that just required too much. So, four truths of the gospel from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 on down to 39. Here's the first one. The gospel requires us to ask questions. The gospel requires us to ask questions. Rachel and I have been married for uh, 14 years, and for 13 of those years, we have had a toddler somewhere in our house. We have five kids, 
13 years going through a toddler at all times, which means a couple of things. One, we have always had someone in diapers or pull-ups for a decade and a half. No rest. It also means someone is constantly saying no and or melting down. And that's not going to change, I've found out, once we're out of toddler face. The final thing that's always happening in our house is someone is always asking questions. Always asking why. Question upon question upon question. Rachel and I's favorite date now is just to get out of the house, the two of us, and drive in silence. Where no one asks us a question. Right, but it, it makes total sense that toddlers and children ask so many questions. They've just been born into an enormous, complex, astounding, and fascinating world, and they're beginning to learn what this world means and where their position and place in this world is. And so, of course, they want to ask questions. Because asking questions is a sign that they still don't know everything. Well, Romans chapter 8 in this beautiful passage from 31 to 39 begins not with a statement, not with a declaration, and not with a command. It begins with a question. Paul has just spent all of chapter 8 in what some pastors and theologians call the greatest chapter in all of Scripture expounding the mysteries and the beauty and the power and the impact of the gospel. Uh, listen to the truths that, that from chapters 1 to chapters 8 and up to this verse, Paul has declared in just this one letter. Romans 1.17 tells us that righteousness comes only by and through faith. That's the verse, by the way, that started the Reformation. That's the verse, Romans 1.17, that Martin Luther said, Oh my goodness, the righteousness of God is given to us by faith. Following that verse in Romans chapter 1, it also tells us that every human being has willingly rebelled against God and every human being is desperate of salvation. Romans 2 tells us that attempting to find righteousness by obedience is futile and it'll never happen. Romans 3 declares the totality of our sin, that we are dead in the midst of it and that no one seeks after God. But it also tells us that God has passed over former sins and that Christ instead has bore the punishment of those sins. Romans 5 is chocked full with gospel truth that includes that Christ has died for us at the right time in the midst of our sin and depravity. That He has utterly reversed the curse of Adam and that God's grace is far more abundant than our sin ever will be. Romans 6 explains how grace frees us from the bondage of sin. And it frees us into a life of holiness. Romans 7 is a confession of a man, Paul, who still doesn't see the gospel permeating through all areas of his life. He says, oh, why, wretched man, am I always doing 
what I don't want to do and not doing the things that I want to do. And then finally in Romans 8, he tells us of the full extent of Christ's work. How we are alive in the Spirit. How we are now sons of God. And how the Lord Himself is working all things together for good. And so Paul crescendos all of this truth. And you know what he says? So what in the world do we make of all this? How does this change our world? How does this change us? How should we respond? What do we do now? What then shall we say to all of these things? You know, there was a a preeminent theologian and pastor from this past century, and he preached through almost every book of the Bible, it seemed like, except Romans. And in an interview, someone asked him, when when are you going to preach through the book of Romans? And his response was, when I understand it. Essentially, what he was saying is, I can't preach through Romans yet. Because I don't fully understand the heights and the depths of the gospel that it declares. The gospel is big. It's vast. It is life-changing. And the sooner that you and I can admit it, that we don't have our arms around it, the better. You know, I am convinced that the greatest scheme potentially of the enemy in the church is offering us spiritual pride. Or conversely, it is offering us spiritual insecurity that makes us pretend like we have spiritual pride. But either way, the greatest scheme of the enemy, quite honestly, may be that he convinces us that we either have to believe or pretend like the gospel has saturated every area of our life. Like we already know all the answers to the questions that we have. That we actually fully, unshakably believe the truth that we declare. But Paul offers us another way. In the midst of the safety of Christ Jesus and the gospel that he has just declared, he invites us into being spiritually incomplete. He invites us into being gospel novices. Or at the very least, gospel amnesiacs. I'm convinced that the church and this church would and will continue to thrive if we can look ourselves in the mirror and then look out at the world around us and confess that there's still so much about the Gospel of Jesus we don't believe. That we still don't know yet and haven't experienced yet how it actually transforms every aspect of our life, and yet also confess that we desperately want to learn how it does. You know, we we have this reoccurring argument in our house where someone will, and I say our house, I just mean Rachel and I, 
Someone will admit sin or doubt or unbelief in some area. And, and, and then, then we'll say something like, but I know that I don't need to be ashamed or I know that I don't need to seek after that or I know that I don't need to freak out or I know that I know. And then the other person will say, no, you don't know. You don't really know those things about God. You don't really know those things about you. And then we've gotten to the place where the other one will go, I know that I don't know. And then the other one's like, no, you don't know that you don't know. Right? And it just goes on and on and on. Can I tell you what I've learned about the gospel? I don't, I don't know it. Gosh, there's so much in my life where I don't know it. There's so many times where I want to cover up because I'm scared to death that the gospel isn't real for me. There's so many times where I freak out because I don't know that my Heavenly Father is good. And there's an invitation by Paul to say, will you please live with your hands open like little children saying daily, Father, what do I do with this? How do I believe this? Would you just say to one another, will you help me believe this? Will you help me get my arms around this? Will you help me see where I don't actually believe this? Because the Gospel means life-changing news. I remember when I became a, a, a husband and I thought to myself, I don't know how to do this. I've never been a husband before. I remember when, when Rachel gave birth to our first child, to Noah, and I thought to myself, I don't know how to be a father. And this Gospel is bigger life transformation than that. So let's stop pretending that we know how to do it and instead lock arms underneath of the grace and mercy of our Heavenly Father and say, God, daily, we're going to try and figure this thing out together. The Gospel requires us to ask questions. Like Paul, we must constantly say, what then, God? What's next? We must constantly ask, do I really understand it? We must ask each other, do you really believe it? Because to not ask questions is to forfeit going further up and further into the Gospel, as C.S. Lewis says. It's to say that you and I have had a taste and that we don't want any more. The blessings of the Gospel, the blessings of the Kingdom of Christ, Jesus tells us it's for those that are inadequate and needy. For those that are poor in spirit. For those that are hungry and thirsty. For those that mourn and long for comfort. And the only thing that all of those people have in common is that they don't yet have all that they need. And they want more. And that's what we're invited into, into the Gospel. The Gospel requires us to ask questions. But Paul goes on. He tells us the Gospel has a logic that holds us fast in difficult times. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He 
who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, perhaps one of the hardest aspects for us to know and believe and get our arms around with the gospel is how the love of Christ interacts with our sufferings and our sorrows and our difficulties. Paul is writing this letter to a church in Rome where many are already suffering persecution and many more are about to. In Romans 8, verse 18 through 25, Paul describes the sufferings and the groanings of the entire world. And he does that right after calling us sons and heirs with Christ. And right after talking about the sufferings and groanings of the world, he then goes on and says that the Lord God works all things together for good. And so there's a natural reaction when you get to this portion of Romans chapter 8, which is to say, what? How do those two things go hand in hand? How can He be good and loving? How can we be sons and daughters and yet suffer and yet have the world groaning and yet face trial and tribulation and persecution and chaos? How can you be working all things together for good? What do we do with that? You know, I love it because Paul doesn't actually address the question. Or he does address the question, but he doesn't give a simple answer. And he also doesn't brush off that question as insignificant. Instead, what Paul does when he's confronted with the difficulty of the suffering and hardships of this world in light of the Gospel, Paul responds with what he absolutely does know. Which is that the love of God is beyond compare. Paul uses a a logic that's called a fortiori. Great word. It means from greater to lesser. Paul Paul essentially says if if God's love for us is big enough that He would give His his only Son, His own Son, literally that that word is is the same phrase that's, that's used when God calls Abraham to go and sacrifice Isaac. He says to him, take your one and only, your beloved, your uniquely beautiful, wonderful, the one you care more about than the whole world, take that son. And if you don't know the end of the story of of Abraham and Isaac, guess what? Isaac isn't sacrificed. The Lord provides a lamb. And that lamb is his own son. If God loves us so much that He will not withhold His one and only Son, then certainly His love is big enough, great enough, grand enough to meet any other need that we have left over. Kind of drive this down. If, if I was working out in my garage, John Piper uses this analogy, and I, I love it. And I said to one of my sons, hey, I want you to go across the street uh, to our neighbor Mickey's house, and I want you to ask him if we can borrow a wrench. 
And if he looked at me and said, well, what, what if he says no? You, what, what if he doesn't want us to borrow a wrench? Are you sure he'll let us? And if I said to my son, hey, Mickey let us borrow his car yesterday. I think he'll let us borrow a wrench for a couple minutes. That's what Paul is saying. Yeah, you're in the midst of suffering right now. You might be in the midst of difficulty right now. You might not understand what's happening right now. But the God that would give the most valuable, precious, beautiful, perfect gift in the world for you, everything else is peanuts. He'll give it It would make no sense for him to give Christ Jesus to to reconcile you for all eternity, to give the best thing he ever had, and then not give you the smaller things. Listen, the, the gospel doesn't answer every question for us. It doesn't always allow us to read the mind of God or to understand what he's doing, but it does give us a logic that is a firm foundation for when we see the world around us falling apart. And and, and hear this. The world around us will fall apart. Don't buy into a false version of Christianity where you think you're going to go from strength to strength to strength or victory to victory to victory. Because that's not how it works. The Christian life doesn't rest on a logic of the circumstances around us. It doesn't rest on a logic of our performance or morality. It rests on the logic of the love of our Father. If He loved us enough to give us His Son in order to reconcile us to Him, then won't He also hold us fast when we are flailing and weak then won't he also even use suffering and difficulty to somehow draw us closer to him? Then won't he also concern himself with our daily bread as much as our eternal holiness? Then won't he also complete in us the work that he has started? Then won't he also stay near to us Now that the veil has been torn and the separation that our sin has caused has been done away with. And the answer is yes. Yes. A thousand times yes. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. If you find yourself looking up to your heavenly Father saying, are you still going to do it? Are you still going to heal? Are you still going to love? Are you still going to care? Are you still going to protect? Are you still going to forgive? Are you still going to cover my failings? Paul says, look to Christ. Because the promises of God in Him are yes. The gospel provides us a logic that requires us to ask questions 
but when we don't have quick answers to them, when we don't understand how everything lines up, then there's this beautiful opportunity for us with utter humility to look to others around us when they have questions they can't answer and say to them, I don't know, but I know your Father loves you. To look at ourselves and say, I don't know, but I know my Father loves me. You know, church planting has been hard. Rachel and I, in the last six years, have both experienced deep and difficult spiritual seasons of dryness. We've both struggled with doubt and insecurity and sin. And honestly, in the last six years, during this church plant, we've probably walked through what has been up to this point. I say that with some weak knees the most difficult season of our marriage. And when we would ask the question, God, why? Or what are you doing? Or how long will this last? Oftentimes we didn't get answers. Not directly to that question, but we did get one answer again and again. And oftentimes it came from you guys who would look at us and say with humility, I don't know, but I know your Father loves you. The Gospel requires questions. The Gospel has a logic that holds us fast in the midst of difficulty. Third, the gospel is absolute. You know, when we read scripture, sometimes we forget that these were written by real men who really lived and who, like us, experienced the heights and depths of the goodness of God and then also wrestled in the midst of the muck and the mire. And I love as you read this passage, as, as Paul is writing, you can, you can kind of feel his emotion, his, his excitement, and his awe just begin to kind of bubble up. What then shall we say to these things? If, if God is for us, who, who can be against us? Well, he who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Well, then who can bring a, a, a charge against God's elect? Because it's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he, he was raised. Who's at the right hand of God. Who's interceding for us right now. You can hear Him. Hear the Gospel. And you can hear Him begin to respond. After verse 32, as Paul is giving a firm foundation for those that are in the midst of suffering. He continues on to give more assurance to those who are in Christ Jesus. He says essentially the Gospel is not just good news if you're suffering. It's also good news if you're being condemned or accused. It's good news for those who feel trapped in the midst of shame and guilt. It's good news for those who are unworthy and inadequate. Because Paul tells us 
in light of Christ who died and rose again, who is right now at the right hand of the Father applying His finished work to us, then who can say anything against us? I mean, can this world bring any charge against us? Can a boss? Can our spouse? Can our family? Can even the enemy of our soul stand up and condemn us? How much more can you condemn yourself? No. Paul doesn't even answer his own question. Who shall bring any charge? Because the answer is no one. The work of Christ Jesus is simply too strong, too complete, too absolute. You know, if this is my favorite passage in Romans chapter 8, my second favorite would be Romans 8 chapter or verse 1, where Paul simply says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I preached that verse just a few months after we planted Mercy's Door. And, and I love that verse, and, and I'll, I'll throw that verse around. I'll speak that verse to other people. You know what the problem with that verse is? None of us really believe it. Like, it sounds so good, right? No condemnation. No shame. No guilt. No one can bring a charge against you. But who can really admit their deepest faults and the depths of their own selfishness without weak knees? Who can stand up in boldness in the face of those who would point out all of their flaws and inadequacies? But Paul tells us that Jesus has the last word. And the last word of Jesus says, not guilty. The last word of Jesus says, beloved. Says, innocent. Says, spotless. Says, perfectly righteous. Says, valuable. The Gospel is absolute. Like, I, I need you to hear that. Like, because this is why we have to ask questions. Because we can go, okay, man, I, I get it. Like, he's forgiven me. You know, and so I'm forgiven. I'm beloved. I'm spotless. I'm righteous. But really, I just failed. But really, I just sinned again. But really, I was just a jerk to my wife. But really, I just freaked out at my kids. But really, I'm a lazy employee. You know what Jesus says? No, but really, you are loved. But really, you are forgiven. See, it's the Gospel that has preeminence. It is absolute in declaring who you are. 
Those other things are now the shadows, and the gospel is the substance. When you freak out, that's not who you really are. When you sin, that's not who you really are. When you fail, that's not who you really are. Who you really are is in Christ Jesus. Absolutely, 100% the end. The gospel is absolute. And so can I invite you to exhale? Can I invite you to rest? I remember early on when we planted Mercy's Door, one of the first conversations I had with my parents after they came to be a part of the church, and I just said, hey, what, what's the Lord doing? What's the Lord saying? Uh, what do you think? And my mom looked at me, and, and I didn't know what she was going to say. Maybe, I, you know, like the music's too loud, or gosh, you preach really long. And she didn't say any of those things. She looked at me and she said, I have never had someone tell me in light of the gospel, rest. She said, I've had a lot of people tell me, now go do. Now go be. Now stop doing those things. Now start doing those things. But no one had ever told her it's done. It's finished. The gospel is absolute. And finally, Paul tells us, and the Lord has shown me that the gospel never ends. Paul ends Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39, with some of the most famous words in all of Christendom. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, no rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, or heights, or depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Coming off of verse 34, the right response is, gosh, this is wonderful. Like, this is everything I've ever wanted or needed. But what if I lose it? What if I lose it? And Paul's unequivocal answer is, you can't. And you won't. As a matter of a fact, Paul in these verses essentially says the very things that would try and separate you from the love of Christ Jesus can do nothing but drive you deeper into Him. That's what he means when he says we are more than conquerors 
John Piper says, conquerors slay their enemies in battle. But to be more than a conqueror is to see your enemy defeated and then watch them stand up and serve you. Suffering, it can't separate you from the Lord. It can only drive you deeper into His tenderness. Your own sin cannot separate you from the Lord, but instead drive you to more deeply experience His grace and mercy. Even the enemy of our soul in what he thought was his greatest hour of victory as he watched Christ upon the cross was only ensuring the healing of the world. Paul's writing can be disconcerting in these verses. It feels like he goes a little bit too far. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But Paul is saying something profound. He's saying to those that are reading in Rome and for all of those Christ followers that come afterwards, he's telling us, I don't know where your story goes from here. I don't know how hard it's going to be. I don't know how difficult it will be or how difficult it will be. I don't know how much suffering or sorrow might come into your life. I don't know how many valleys you will experience, but here's what I do know. I might not know where your story goes from here, but I know where it ends. And it ends in a really, really unfathomably good place. Like, I want you guys to hear this. We are terrified to plant a church again. We are terrified to leave our hometowns. Terrified to leave family. I'm terrified that I got the calling of the Lord wrong. I'm terrified that we will make a really bad decision. I'm terrified that planting this time will be even more difficult than the last, and I'm terrified that we will fail. And you know what? I don't know how the story goes from here. But the Lord has told me how it ends. And it ends how I truly exist right now, which is loved by Him, cared for by Him, covered by Him, and accepted by Him. And so honestly, that frees us up to do stupid things like plant a church. Like it, it offers... A, a, a level of boldness that's not found in me or my ability or Rachel and her ability or how neat and tidy and organized our household is. Praise be to God. 
It offers us a boldness in the Lord to run after Him hard. To pursue His glory with reckless abandon. And to experience His love fully. Put it another way, there are no loopholes in the Gospel. Rachel and I are under contract in a house in Texas and for the last two months there are tenants in this house. And when we went under contract, we went under contract expecting that the tenants were going to move out by the time we closed. And then the tenants told us, no, we're going to stay until the end of September. And so we spent like weeks reading through the lease, looking for every possible loophole to get them out of our house. And we couldn't find one. And that was bad news for us. But I'm telling you that the gospel, the contract, the covenant sealed by the blood of Jesus is far stronger than the Texas Realtors Association residential lease. Which is pretty strong. There are no loopholes in the gospel. You can't fail your way out of it. It's based on the love of God and the strength of God and the faithfulness of God and His love and strength and faithfulness never end. Which means the Gospel never ends. And so can I just say this really honestly? You are going to make a mess of your life. And more than one time. You're going to freak out and do things that you ought not do. You're going to say things that you wish you wouldn't say. You're going to make decisions that you wish you wouldn't make. And you're going to be tempted to believe that those decisions or those moments or those actions or those words have now become what defines your story. And can I just invite you into hearing that that's a lie? Your story is no longer your own. It's His. It's already written. The final pages are done. And so when you freak out and flail, when you run from the Lord, come back to Him. And when you sin against your brother and your sister, go to them. Beg for forgiveness and then stand in the covering of Christ Jesus. When you fail the church, Come back. Start again. Live anew in the covering of Christ within the body of Christ. Run with reckless abandon. And when you fall, get back up and run again. Listen, I am the dad of four boys and one girl. Which means I only have to pay for one wedding. No, that's, that's not actually what I was going to say. 
I have a feeling there's going to be something that happens in the next like 10 years where it's like, you know what, we're going to reverse that. And I will be so broke. And all of my boys will have the gift of singleness. No, what it means is that I only get to walk a daughter down the aisle once. And of all my favorite moments of weddings, and I love as a pastor weddings, my favorite moment is when a father walks his daughter down the aisle and he takes her hand and he places it in the hand of the husband-to-be. And I have told a lot of pastors that that is the role of a pastor. It's, it's to take the hand of the bride of Christ and to walk them down the aisle and to place their hand into the hand of Christ. And it's not just the role of a pastor, it's the role of every Christ follower. This is what we do in gospel community. When your knees start to shake, when your faith is weak, when you don't understand what's happening, we take your hand and we walk you through the truth of the gospel and we place your hand in Christ and we say, look into his eyes. You're his. To lead others to Christ so that each of us would come face to face with Jesus. To be loved by him to dwell in His presence forever. That's what this is all about. And the Gospel says that we are truly and fully His. And He is fully and truly ours. And Paul tells us that nothing is ever going to change that. Church, hear this really, really good news. Pray with me.